Welcome to The Recovery Show. We are friends and family members of alcoholics and addicts who have found a path to serenity and happiness. We who live or have lived with the seemingly hopeless problem of addiction understand as perhaps few others can. So much depends on our own attitudes and we believe that changed attitudes can aid recovery. Before we begin, we would like to state that though we may be in a 12-step program, we represent ourselves rather than the program. During this show, we will share our own experiences as they relate to the topic of asking for help. The opinions expressed here are strictly those of the person who gave them. Take what you like and leave the rest. We hope that you will find something in our sharing that speaks to your life. My name is Kelly, and I will be your host today. Joining me is co-host Swetha. How are you, Swetha? Fine. Thanks, Kelly. Good. And next to Swetha is co-host Spencer. How are you doing, Spencer? I'm a little under the weather, but ready to go. We're glad you made it. The first segment of today's episode of The Recovery Show will be our discussion on the topic, Asking for Help. Following a musical break, we'll talk about our lives in recovery, about what's happening in the meetings we attend and in our lives, and then we'll follow that with a brief news about the podcast before closing with another musical break. I'm going to start with a reading from the Al-Anon Daily Reader called Courage to Change. And we found a couple of great readings on asking for help, but this was the uh, this was the consensus reading. It's page sixty six. It says Alanon helped has helped me realize that no one readily knows what is in my heart, mind, and soul. I can't expect my needs to be met unless I first explain what those needs are. Nor can I expect any one person to meet all those needs, even if I make them clear. If the first person I ask for help is unable to provide it, I can ask someone else. This takes the pressure off of all of us. Before I began my Al-Anon recovery, I expected those closest to me to know what I was feeling without my telling them. When I was angry and wanted to argue, I silently fumed. When I was hurt and wanted comfort, I pouted. When I wanted attention, I talked nonstop. I couldn't understand why I rarely got the responses I expected. I no longer expect anyone to read my mind. I also accept that I can't read the mind of a loved one. Today, I treat the people in my life with more respect because I am learning to ask for what I need and to encourage others to do the same. So we're going to get right into the discussion here. I think this is an interesting topic for all of us involved here in the podcast, but maybe we could start off by just talking a little bit about whether or not we have trouble asking for help initially, because I feel like there may be people out there who don't have trouble asking for help, but Spencer? (laughs) (laughs) Wow. Well, I know that, you know, when I came to to Al-Anon, I really thought that um, what I had been taught, I think, by probably by my parents growing up, by society, uh, and, you know, my own ego, I'm sure, was that I was supposed to be able to to solve everything myself, that that, um, asking for help was a sign of weakness. Uh, that I was supposed to have the answers, that I was supposed to be able to fix everything. And so it was difficult to to reach out uh, to somebody else to say, hey, I have a problem and I don't know what to do about it. Um, and I think one of, the, one of the saving graces for me was that I was in a lot of pain and I really didn't know what to do about it. And, and that kind of encouraged me to to reach out, but I didn't do it very effectively at the beginning. I really didn't. Um, and I think one of the one of my issues there is probably just trust. Um, it, trusting that that if I reached out for help to 
to somebody who, you know, I really didn't know them. Um, all I knew was that, yeah, they're, they're in this Al-Anon program. Maybe, maybe I had heard something they said in a meeting that, uh, struck me as maybe relevant to my life, but there's a, there's a big issue of trust there when we're talking about dealing with, um, feelings, um, particularly the kind of feelings that, um, I was experiencing, uh, living with an active alcoholic that, um, exposing those and exposing myself to somebody else, um, was a risk. I don't know. How about, um, how about you, Swetha? I really resonated with what you were saying, Spencer. Uh, I, th- I distinctly recall when I was around like nine or 10, my dad took me aside and sat me down and told me one day, you can't rely on anyone but yourself, Swetha. Not your friends, not your family. <laughs> it's just you. No one else, no one else in the world is ever going to be dependable. Don't ever rely on anybody else. And I was like, oh, it's my dad. It must be the true story, you know? Like, and, um, I mean, but still growing up, I, I needed help from my parents. Um, and I remember a lot, uh, that when I did ask for help, I would be harshly reprimanded and then they would take over whatever it was. If it was, um, oh, hey, I'm, I'm doing some homework, uh, writing some code or something like that. I'm writing a program. Um, I've been looking at this code for hours. Can you just, uh, my eyes are tired. Can you look over it and see what I'm missing? And then it would be, Suddenly that my dad is like obsessively going over this program line by line, freaking out, going, we don't have time for this. We don't have time for this. And um, then he would like rewrite the program, you know, for me. And I'd be <laughs> thinking, what is he doing? <laughs> he doesn't even know what the class is. Like, what? I just need him to look at some code. And um, so that feeling of just suddenly, t- um, I felt like my choices were taken away, that I, my control had been taken away. Mm. And that my control over my own projects, my own life was taken away and that I wasn't seen as responsible enough to address my own issues, that I was uh, small or insignificant or why, why couldn't you fix this on your own? Now I have to take over and I have to fix it all. It all has to be fixed, you know, that kind of thing. So, yeah, asking for help was really scary. That, that would really discourage you, wouldn't it? <laughs> it would. <laughs> After that, I, was, I would like sneakily ask for help. I'd be like, hypothetically, <laughs> if I had this line of code, how would you feel about that? <laughs> but even that, it was, it was yeah, I, would, I didn't want to ask for help because I didn't want to give up my rights to my life. I felt like if I was asking for help, I was saying, I give up, you, you do everything, and I'll do nothing. And I didn't want that. I like control way too much. Um, what about you, Kelly? <laughs> Well, I, I could kind of relate to what you were saying. I, I think when I was growing up and learning about asking for help, you know, like if I went to my parents and asked for help with homework or something, a project that I was working on, the response that I would be given was, um, it, you have to figure this out for yourself. You know, that that's the challenge of the class is for you to figure out how to do this on their own, on your own. Mm-hmm. And so I kind of adopted that attitude towards everything in life. Mm. You know, when I, when I kept getting that response of, well, it's not my job to do it for you. Mm-hmm. You need to figure it out on your own. I kind of took that to everything. And so I didn't really feel comfortable going to anyone in my family for anything. I mean, if I couldn't ask them for help with homework, I definitely couldn't go to them for anything more intimate <laughs> about my personal life or, you know, boy troubles or issues with my friends or anything like that. So um, I, I think it, you know, it kind of stemmed from that and just applying that attitude towards everything in my life. Um, I could also, I mean, I can kind of relate to the idea that we talk about in the program that when it gets painful enough, 
you'll do something about it. And asking for help was kind of like that for me, you know. Got to hit bottom first. Exactly. <laughs> yes. Yeah. I mean, I, I still struggle with that today. And unless a problem really, truly hits home, it's really hard for me to put myself out there and ask for help. So, mm-hmm. um, I'm assuming it kind of sounds like both of you guys are leaning into an idea that maybe you, struggle with asking for help a little bit less now than before you came into the program? Um, I would say that, that I do. Um, and you know, part of that coming back to the trust thing, but, um, part, uh, you know, a big part of, of being more willing to ask for help for me is my realization that uh, my understanding that, you know, I do not have all the answers. Mm -hmm. Uh, I do not know everything and I don't always know what's the best thing for me. Mm-hmm. And uh, sometimes, I think very often for me, asking asking for help, asking for guidance, asking for um, experience uh, is not about me thinking that the other person has the right answer. It's not me thinking that the other person knows how I can fix whatever it is that is bothering me. It's getting a different perspective. It's getting a different point of view. Uh, because sometimes I just need to get out of my head. Uh, I need to get, maybe I've been, particularly if I've been sort of perseverating on something, it's been going round and round and, and I'm, I'm stuck in a groove and I need, uh, I need to hear something that will sort of knock, <coughs> excuse me, knock me out of that groove. Whether or not it turns out to be, you know, the right answer, assuming there is a right answer, which there probably isn't. <laughs> um, it just, it gives me, it, I, I've had this experience at work. Um, and I'm trying to think how much I did this sort of before I came into Al-Anon versus after. And I can't really pin it down, but I would have the experience of getting stuck on something. I also write code for a living and, and I would get stuck on something and it just, you know, it wasn't working the right way. It wasn't working the way I thought it should work or whatever. And I would call a coworker over and I would say, you know, Hey, Rob, can you look at this with me? And I'd start going through and explaining to him what it was trying to do. And more often than not in that process, I would see the problem. Mm-hmm. And, and he used to joke, all we really need is a cardboard cut out of me. So just bring the cardboard cutout over and put it in your cube and you can explain to the cardboard cutout, um, you know, what's wrong. And I actually read a little uh, blog post about something like that where a guy came to his boss with a, a problem and the, and the boss said, well, tell it to the rubber duck first. And he said, what? He said, the rubber duck over there. Take the rubber duck over to your desk and tell the problem to the rubber duck. And if you still haven't figured it out, then come to me. <laughs> and, and I find that sometimes in the program too, that if if I need to talk something through with somebody, it's it's not always that I'm even looking for a response. Mm-hmm. I just need to tell it to somebody outside my head because in the process of telling, that helps to clarify what's going on. Those are some of the ways that, that I've learned to ask for help without asking for people to fix. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was always really terrified, like I mentioned before, that somebody would try to fix my life and I didn't really want them to fix it in that way, but then... Once I ask for help, that means I am committed to whatever they decided for me. Mm-hmm. Um, but then, uh, when I came into the program, I, I had like my defenses up. Like I, I wanted, 
wanted to be really good at the program. I wanted to get an A plus. So <laughs> I knew we were supposed to ask for help. Um, and I avoided it <laughs> for a really long time because I mean, really, how are people going to know? Like, do they compare notes when they come to meetings? Did Swetha call you this week? No. Did Swetha call you? No. Um, but, um, but, uh, as, as I, started I, at some points I realized that I I was in too much pain and what I was I didn't have any other answers like I was just I didn't know what else to do so at that point it, I thought well if someone else is going to fix it for me at least it'll be you know something different than what I've done <laughs> um and maybe that'll work and nobody fixed it for me the things I called about they just kept saying keep coming back which was really nice <laughs> um and I I mean it's not interestingly I don't think I have a less difficult time asking for help I'm just more aware of the fact that I'm struggling to ask for help and um at times like that I stop trusting my thinking and realize that hey I'm struggling with asking for help so I really don't want to so I'm going to call my sponsor or Spencer <laughs> and uh and that's that's generally that's generally how it goes. I mean, the program doesn't tell you what to do. It does give you suggestions, and um, it suggests that we ask for help when we when we need it, rather than struggle with it and try and fix it on my on our own. But even today, I sit there thinking, "Oh God!" But then they'll know about this problem, and then <laughs> and then they're going to reprimand me, and then they're going to try to control it and change all my code. They're going to change all my code. <laughs> Um, and then take the credit for and it. And then take the credit <laughs> for it. Oh my God. <laughs> but, uh, it's slow, even slowly, like in the program, people have kept reemphasizing that they don't give advice, that they just share their experiences. And I'm so slowly I've gotten more comfortable with asking people for help in that way in the program. And once I was more secure about asking for help, even though it's still difficult, um, in the program, when I ask for help outside the program, like at work or whatever, and someone, say my dad <laughs> tries to do the whole, I'll fix this whole thing for you. I'm able to step back and say, mm, no, no, <laughs> that's nice. But no, this is specifically what I need. Are you able to give me that or not? And if he says, no, I'm going to fix this for you. I, I don't have to stay and let him fix it. I can just be like, well, thanks anyway. And then leave. And if he still messes with my code, that's fine. It's kind of a waste of his time, but that's not my hula hoop. So program's kind of given me the security to ask for help without feeling like I need to commit to it. And that, that was really great. What about you, nice. Kelly? Yeah, my, I'm, my willingness has definitely increased uh, as I've been in the program longer. And it, the, the moment that is sticking in my mind as being kind of a pivotal point in terms of asking for help was the point at which I asked someone to be my sponsor. Um, I I didn't really feel comfortable putting my stuff on anybody else because I wasn't really sure, and especially when I first came into the program, what level of judgment people had in the mm -hmm. program. Um, I really, uh, Kelly, when you say judgment, are you talking about them judging you or sort of judgment in the sense of maybe common sense or whatever? Um, no, them judging me, okay. you know, That's if I, I were thought, to, <laughs> but, thought, well, it could be the other way. So. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think because that was, that was sort of the mindset that I was used to is if you put yourself out there, you're exposing yourself for someone to take that information and use it against you at some future point. Mm -hmm. And so <clears throat> I really had a hard time feeling like, uh, you know, who can I trust? 
And so I, I really waited a long time until I found someone that every time she shared, I could, I could resonate with what she was saying. I wanted what she had. I liked, I liked the direction that she was moving in. And so I started with her. And, um, I also made one friend really early on in the program and I, I talked to her about a few things, <laughs> uh, but it was definitely a very, very gradual process. Um, and, and I know we kind of talked about this a little bit before we started the recording today about this idea of trust. So Spencer, what, what do you think the element of trust has to do with asking for help for you? You know, I was just thinking, I wanted to say something about trust, so how about that? <laughs> well, so one thing that I found coming into to Al-Anon is that developing one of the ways I believe we develop trust in the program is by being vulnerable, by exposing ourselves. Uh, and so when I saw other people, and I had to see other people doing this first, right, that I saw other people talking about these personal things, talking about their feelings, talking about these events that, that happened in their life that I might have had something similar and, and I would not have had the courage or I would have felt too shamed to talk about it. And so when you see this happening, you get the feeling that, okay, so these people trust the meeting these people are exposing themselves and therefore that makes them trustworthy and maybe I can do something similar or at least I can talk to this person uh, because I can connect with something that they've exposed to themselves. I can expose something of myself back. And um, so I think part of that was part of what made, made me develop the ability to trust the meetings, to trust the process and to trust the people that were there. The other experience that I had in my, my, starting in my first year in the program was that I joined a small group to work the steps, what we sometimes call an AWOL group, uh, which stands for a way of living. And there was a group of eight of us who committed to meet once a week to work through the steps. And we made it actually all the way through all 12 steps with only one person having dropped out after about two years. Um, she said, I really didn't commit to be here this long and, and I need to, and, and that was fine. But in that group, as we shared sort of deeper and deeper parts of our lives working through the steps, we developed a mutual trust relationship that for me was one of the first sort of healthy personal trust relationships that I think that I really had in my life. Um, you know, there's always the, I mean, I'd been, been married a couple times and, and you develop a certain kind of trust in a marriage, but at least in my experience, there were, there were things that, um, you know, I did not, I think, talk about to my, to my wife and because it was no, you know, it was sort of like, I love you, therefore I trust you. And that's actually not the best basis for trust, <laughs> um, as it turns out, <laughs> Amen. <laughs> I'm a juice waiter. <laughs> and Any with trust that, issues? <laughs> and with that, I begin. <clears throat> um, yeah, I uh, yeah, I had serious trust issues. Still have serious trust issues. Um, but uh, yeah, with the with the program, I, I think I shared one of my first like five meetings was the first time I shared, but I didn't 
trust anybody there. So I was like, kind of, I was trying to do the same thing. It, what you were mentioning, Kelly, like checking out judgment level. Mm-hmm. So I shared about a positive thing. <laughs> and I was like, this is a bad thing that was going on. And this is how I dealt with it. And, and then I kind of like after the meeting, people came up to me and they were like, that's so great that it happened the way it did. And, you know, um, the universe has a way of presenting you the same test over and over again until you pass and things like that. And I was thinking they're not, they're not like, Oh, it's good that you succeeded because otherwise get out, <laughs> you know, <laughs> like we don't, we don't talk to losers like you. It, it wasn't that it was, we're glad that you were able to get through what you got through in the way that you did. And we're here to offer support. It wasn't about the outcome. It was about the situation. And I started hearing, I was like, Oh, that's, new. <laughs> and um, then uh, after that, I, I think um, I started easing into things like I'm I do not like feelings like I, if I cry, I, I or at least I used to, um, if I felt like crying, I would step away, I'd be like, Oh, guys, I, I have to go blow my nose, I'll be right back and go to a bathroom stall, make sure there was no one there and then close the door and cry and then come wash my face. I have like all these tactics for not looking like I was emotional <laughs> at all. And then I'd come back and things like that. Um, so no one would know. And I think at one of my first like 15 meetings, something like that, um, I think Spencer was there for this share too. And uh, I was mentioning, oh yeah, I, I prayed. And then I ended up crying. <laughs> and I was like, I think I got to mutter the word crying or tried to get through that sentence really fast. And, um, and afterwards people were like, that's great. You know, good for you. We're, we're glad that, you know, you're feeling the way you're feeling. And I was like, it was pain guys. It was pain that I felt. <laughs> Are you serious right now? But they weren't, again, there was no judgment. There was just, it is, this, this is just what you did. This is what we went through. It's fine. And so then I slowly opened up once in a while about a bad thing, but then rounded it out with something good and eventually just confessed that I'm a lunatic and with trust issues. Um, but that that was okay. Everyone there is just like, yeah, welcome to the club, dude. <laughs> we're all, we're all here for recovery. And, um, and still, I, I mean, I still have trust issues and that's my thinking. Like I, none of the issues that I had before the program are, have like magically disappeared. And, um, if I stop, working the steps or if I stop going to meetings, I so quickly go back into that. It's remarkable how fast I can slip back into that. Um, but it's, it's, that's just the way I think. And the program has, um, has let me realize that there is another way and I can feel that I'm having trust issues with someone or something and then decide to address it differently than I used to. And I don't run to bathroom stalls to, to cry or, or have feelings or, or whatever, I just stand there and say, hey, this is kind of upsetting to me. I mean, theoretically, I say this. Sometimes it doesn't always work. Sometimes I still <laughs> am kind of like, I'm going to hold this in, I'm going to talk to somebody, and then I'll do it. But uh, yeah, trust is trust issues are still there, but the program has given me, I, but now I kind of trust, I do, I tr- trust the program more than I trust my own thinking now. So that's been really good for me. What about you, Kelly? Progress, not perfection. Yeah. <laughs> Um, I actually wanted to read a little bit, uh, a couple of excerpts from uh, How Al-Anon Works. There is a section in the very beginning about reaching out to others. And uh, the first paragraph starts off by saying, Yet at first, reaching out for help may actually seem more dangerous than continuing to struggle alone. Before coming to Al-Anon, the surest way to survive was to handle everything by ourselves, to keep quiet about our problems, and to trust no one so that no one could disappoint us. 
Without the support of people who understood the disease of alcoholism, we learned to tough it out alone. And then it continues on to say, reaching out to others is the key to recovering from the effects of alcoholism. The difference is that we must choose these people with great care to ensure that they really can help. We find the encouragement, help, and support we've been seeking in Al-Anon. What a miraculous feeling to discover that many, many others do understand what we are going through. So I kind of wanted to talk about this idea. I know Spencer brought it up about this idea of the AWOL group. And I did participate in that one of those groups when I was early on in the program. And it's a really intimate setting where you're discussing, you know, it's kind of like a really long fifth step. You're discussing all of the steps with, uh, you know, this group of people and kind of talking about your deepest, darkest secrets. And I feel like I sort of noticed a progression in being in that kind of a group where early on my responses to the questions that we discussed were very reserved and kind of, you know, a little bit base and not very deep. And then the longer I stayed in the group and continue to meet with the same women. And much like Swetha mentioned, you know, when you hear other people being so honest and open, it kind of breaks down that barrier so that you can feel like, okay, you know, if they're willing to do it in this group, you know, I can too. So for me, you know, I I touched on the idea of sponsorship and also the AWOL group, but what are some ways that either of you seem to reach out for help now or, or find help? Right. Well, one of the one of the ways, and and certainly when I first came to the program, um, the way that I first found some help for what was what was going on in my life, what was going on mostly, what was going on emotionally and mentally, um, was going to meetings, mm-hmm. and just knowing that that I was not alone in my struggle, that there were other people who understood, that provided a measure of help. It didn't provide any really specific help. Mm -hmm. Um, But as I came to meetings and as I started to listen to what people were saying, then I started hearing people talk about things that they did that I thought, well, you know, I could try that. And so again, I was not maybe explicitly reaching out to somebody, uh, but just by being there, by being present and by listening, I was starting to hear things that I could use to ease what was happening, ease my pain, ease my frustration, despair, whatever, all those wonderful negative emotions that I came into the program with. I really, I, I don't remember when was the first time that I had a specific issue that I brought to a specific person uh, to, to ex- sort of explicitly ask for help with it. I, I, it was clearly a process. I think I would come in, maybe I'd come into a meeting and I would say, man, I'm really struggling with this. Mm-hmm. And in the hopes that maybe somebody would say something that would help, but I wouldn't have to really put myself out there and just ask a person. Mm-hmm. I did ask somebody to be my sponsor fairly early in the program. I don't remember exactly when. It was two or three months in. We had a a meeting where the topic was sponsorship, and at the end of the meeting I went over to a person who had been saying things that really resonated with me all along and said, hey, will you be my sponsor? Uh, I didn't use my first sponsor very heavily. I was still reluctant. That whole feeling of uh, imposing, mm-hmm. 
mm-hmm. that, oh, wow, if I call, you know, they're going to be busy. They're not going to want to talk to me. You, you, I, I see you identifying with this. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and uh, um, I do remember once uh, my loved one was was home from uh, a long-term uh, residential treatment and in my mind was substituting ice cream for alcohol uh, and I did not like this and I said something to that effect to my loved one who said, call your sponsor. <laughs> uh, so I called my sponsor, you know, because she told me to and, <laughs> and my sponsor said, she's right. Mm-hmm. Uh, you need to butt out. It's her issue. You said what you wanted to say. Now don't say anything more. I was like, damn. <laughs> uh, but that's the first time I really remember explicitly calling. Uh, there were some times um, my loved ones struggled with uh, suicidal feelings at times. And I remember calling to say, um, she's saying these things. What should I do? And I got some very explicit guidance there about is there a plan? Does it seem like there's something imminent or is this just sort of general feelings? Because if, if it's imminent and she has a plan, then you need to get her to the, to the psyche ER. Uh, otherwise just, you know, calm down. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and, uh, and that was helpful. <clears throat> and a lot of us, I think, use our sponsors to help us with the steps I used my AWOL group for that. Mm-hmm. And, uh, but I want to, I, maybe we'll come back to it. I want to talk a little bit about this feeling that we get that we're imposing on people when we ask for help. So maybe that's, that we can do that in another round here. Yeah. Yes, we thought maybe we can keep going about ways that you ask for help and then we'll come oh. back to, uh, to Spencer's okay. idea. Good. Okay. I was confused for a second. Um, I was going to ask for help and guidance <laughs> and see what exactly was happening. I, uh, yeah, definitely. I spawn, my sponsor is like, I have a few people from the program that are on my speed dial list. I just tap over and it's right there, very accessible th- to my thumb on my smartphone. And they're placed in a specific way based on <laughs> how far my thumb has to move. So, uh, <laughs> and, uh, yeah, I'm really that OCD. Um, but I definitely call people from the program. That helps a lot, um, to realize that I'm not, alone. I I think that's the biggest thing for me. A lot of times is um, when I'm panicking, I think I need to scramble to fix something because I alone can fix whatever's going on in the world. And sometimes even just flipping open my phone and seeing that I have these people that I can call and realizing I'm not alone helps a lot. Um, And sometimes one thing I do, or I I try to do every morning, um, I, I didn't this morning because I woke up late, but I, I try every day to write on my hand uh, this quote I saw in Courage to Change. I can't remember the page, but um, the quote was uh, an English proverb, and it said, um, be still and know that I'm with you. So um, when I'm nervous or scared or don't have my phone accessible to me or something <laughs> like that, or even if I do, I'm able to just look down at my wrist and feel like I have my higher power there with me. So I don't feel isolated. I feel like, okay, you know what, whatever it is, it's going to be okay. It may not be awesome. It still might be painful, but uh, I don't have to suffer. I'm not alone. I have all these people in the program. I have my higher power. And then just breathing <laughs> and remembering that I do have my higher power there um, helps a lot. And to the point where I rely on this sometimes so much to the point where it's become like a habit to just whenever I'm nervous, I kind of touch my wrist and I then look down and mm-hmm. see it. 
And uh, the literature is is awesome. Um, that was one of the ways I started trusting the program in the beginning. It's I was like, this is this is ridiculous. It's just a bunch of people walking around talking about their feelings. Like, how could this solve anything? <laughs> um, but it did. I mean, I ended up one day like really upset. And um, I used to do this thing where I bargained with the universe. I was like, all right, if you really, <laughs> if this is gonna, I'll trade you this if you do this, or if this is really gonna happen, you're gonna have to give me a sign. And um, I think it was a higher power moment because one day I was, I still hadn't really gone to the program very often or gone to the meetings very often. And I was just like, fine, you know what? I have a book. If this is really going to work, I can open the back of the book and look up hopelessness and it'll be there. And I thought no index of any book ever in the world has ever had the word hopelessness in there. So I flipped back there and there it was. And I was like, damn, <laughs> damn it. <laughs> Now I gotta read it. <laughs> and, um, and so the literature is really, really helpful. Um, the book, How Al-Anon Works, um, Discovering Choices, I can look back there and even if I don't have someone there to talk to me, I can hear experiences of other people because they have stories in these books. And, uh, and that really helps me a lot too. And definitely, definitely meetings, like Spencer was saying, meetings and, and, um, what I, what I call sanity checks with phone calls. Um, <laughs> Those are really good for me too. What about you, Kelly? Yeah, I'm glad that you brought up the the topic of the literature because uh, as Spencer was talking, I was remembering a couple of moments that happened early on, uh, sort of at my proverbial bottom, so to speak. <laughs> and I remember, I don't even know how I got a hold of a copy of the How Alan on Works book. I don't remember purchasing it. I don't remember anyone giving it to me, but I just remember it being on my nightstand. And there were a couple of moments uh, where, you know, I, so at, at its worst in my current relationship, uh, my, my alcoholic did not relapse, but had been living as a dry drunk for about a year, which essentially means he wasn't going to meetings or doing anything about his program, but he also wasn't drinking. So all those behaviors started coming back and it was getting really crazy in the household. And I didn't have anyone that I felt like I could reach out to with questions. I didn't have a phone list. Um, and I really wasn't even going to meetings at that time, but I had that book on my nightstand. And I remember I didn't even want to get into like the program part of it, but I flipped it open to the the back half of the book, which is all reader submission stories about their experience and I remember spending like hours in the evening um, just reading through those stories. And part of the benefit, I think, was that it actually just pulled me away from my alcoholic so that I wasn't engaging in behavior with him. But um, but it was really helpful. And I didn't think it would be. You know, I didn't want to trust that part of the process. But um, they were so, so beneficial. And once I started reading the stories and I could get something out of it, that actually encouraged me to start looking at the front of the book where it actually talks about the program itself. Because <laughs> I figured if it's working for these people, you know, then maybe I can get something out of it too. Mm -hmm. I'm glad you reminded me about that, Kelly, because that was really important to me when I was early in the program. I had a lot of trouble sleeping at night. I would wake up at two or three in the morning and just be on that, that wheel of despair and frustration and anger and, and, you know, not able to get back to sleep, uh, not able to resolve anything because it was just me and my thoughts. And I found that I could pick up that book 
and I could turn to the back and I could read a couple of those stories and they're not very long, you know, they're four or five pages. So, um, it's, it's a nice digestible piece of, of somebody's experience, strength and hope. And often having done that, then I could, I could get back to sleep. Uh, and so that was huge for me. And when I would talk to people about the literature and I would say, yes, yeah, so we have this book, How Al-Anon Works. It's sort of like, you know, it's our version of the AA big book. It's about the Al-Anon program. I said, don't, don't read it front to back. If you're one of these people that reads a book front to back, don't do that. Okay. The first part kind of goes in a sequence, but you can also dip into it for, you know, helplessness or whatever you're dealing with right now. But do go read some of the stories in the back before you finish reading the the front because uh, it helped me at least, okay, and it might help you. So don't don't overlook that. I guess don't overlook that source of help. I didn't really even know I was I was asking for help at that point. I just found that that reading them made me feel better. So sort of a silent silent cry for help or something. Um, And Swetha, you mentioned uh, sanity checks. And I've learned to do that to, to, when I'm considering a course of action, Mm -hmm. uh, I've learned that sometimes it's a really good idea to maybe call my sponsor or call somebody else in the program and say, you know, I'm thinking about doing this thing and Mm -hmm. I don't know if it's really the right thing to do or not. Um, here's what's up, da 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 da. And, and then, you know, hear what they have to say and they're not going to tell me, yeah, that's crazy. Well, they might, but we understand what that means, you know. Yeah, yeah that's your crazy codependent thinking at work mm-hmm. there. Um, and we can laugh about it. Mm-hmm. Um, but often, I remember one time, and this unfortunately was an after-the-fact one, where um, I had a call from my wife who wanted me to do something uh, related to actually one of the people in her program. And I had, uh, you know, my codependency clicked in and my desire to help clicked in helping quotes. Okay. Um, and, uh, and I, despite the fact that I did not want to say yes, um, I did say yes. And then I felt really shitty about it. Like I really shouldn't have done that. This is not, not, this is not something that I want to do. And I think this is not something that's really in the best interest of the other people as well. But you know, I had said yes. And then as it turned out, it didn't happen. So, but I had to call my sponsor about it. And he reminded me of a couple of things. One is that I can use this, what we call the pause button. I can say, you know, I'm not able to answer that question right now. I need to think about it a little bit. Mm-hmm. Uh, that gets the pressure off of me, lets me look at the, whatever's being asked of me without this Oh my God, I have to have an answer right now mm-hmm. feeling, uh, and, and sort of get the emotion, some of the emotion out of it. But he also said something that I hadn't really thought about, um, and that, that I, I really try to remember now. He said, you know, if you never say no, then all your guesses are meaningless. Mm-hmm. I'm like, whoa. <laughs> 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 That's kind of amazing. Mm-hmm. But it's true. If you always say yes, then, you're not really saying yes. Mm-hmm. You're just exceeding mm-hmm. to a request. And, and so I try to try to think about that and try to mean it when I say yes. Um, I don't have, 
I guess my phone, well, my phone only has three speed dial buttons and they're for family. Okay. Um, well, but, uh, <laughs> I don't call my family <laughs> very much, Spencer. Um, but uh, I do have people that are definitely at the, the top of the list. Um, I can go into the, the recent calls list and just go click, click, click that one. You know? um, so that, that works for me. Um, and it's interesting how the set of people that I call has changed. Um, I think as the issues that I'm facing have changed. Um, you know, when I was dealing with active alcoholism, there was one set of people that I would talk to. And then when I was dealing with issues around my children, there was a different set of people that I would talk to. And now that a lot of the issues I'm dealing with are more internal, it's a different set of people that I talk to. <laughs> Just wanted to, for one thing, really quick, as you were telling me about these groups, I kept thinking, oh my gosh, you can just create little folders with clearly color-coded <laughs> tabs. <laughs> <laughs> Love you, <laughs> Thank you, Spencer. <laughs> Love you too. But about another thing about sanity checks, and also kind of leading into the imposing onto my sponsor, or calling when I call people, um, one way that I know that I need to call someone, sponsor, Spencer, <laughs> friends, <laughs> whatever, um, is that I start using certain f- words like always, mm-hmm. never, mm-hmm. have to, um, things like that. Um, and, um, or they made me something like that. <laughs> something where I am not actively doing anything and it just is this way or that way. And I am a victim. And, um, when I hear myself saying those words, I feel like I have a little alert going off in my head that's just like, whoa, hit that pause button, call somebody. Um, and when I, I, I hate to say that there's, it's a rule because I, I don't always call people just for the, that, but um, that helped me feel a little bit more aware of myself and feel a little bit more like, yeah, you know, I really do need to talk to somebody right now. And once I started calling people when I had that quote unquote rule, and was able to talk to them and just say, hey, this is what's going on. I was able to call people just when I'm like, you know, I, I feel something is off. I'm feeling kind of codependent. And I don't need to be, say, I don't need to say have to, they made me or anything to realize that I need to call anyone anymore. But that's part of that, part of being able to get over that fear of imposition on my sponsor was realizing, okay, this is when I have to call her, uh, which I also needed to call her about since I used that key phrase. Um, but, uh, <laughs> but, uh, but another thing, I was really, I was really lucky to have a partner in the program because, um, I was able to turn to him at that time and just be like, I really want to call her, but what if I'm bothering her and then she's going to hate me and then she's never going to pick up my phone and then I'm going to have to find another one. And it was so hard to ask the first one to be my sponsor. And he was just like, oh my God, call your sponsor. <laughs> just call your sponsor. I can't deal with this. And um, and then I was bitter. So then I was like, I have to call my sponsor now. Um, but but um, it really, I realized, I mean, I, I, I was, I, it took me a long time to get over that fear. And then when people started calling me um in the program a i was really surprised i was like i don't i don't know why you're calling me at the time just because well i have low self-esteem but um (laughs) but then i realized that when they're calling me and they're asking me questions um or not asking me but just kind of sharing their experience and asking me to share one myself i see my program in a totally different way i'm able to see how the steps can work in completely different perspectives and um and it helps me more with my program and um it kind of reminds me of like 
my grandfather, when I was growing up, he would keep encouraging me to learn new languages. And I would think, why do I need to learn a new language? I mean, I can say whatever I want to in this one. Um, but I, I ended up learning a new language because otherwise I couldn't speak to my grandmother. And, um, I learned this, I realized there was, there was a word in my language and I, I can't remember which one it was now, but it was the exact same word it is in English, but it has a slightly different nuance to it, a slightly different meaning. And it just, it just opened, it was about, it was something about the sunrise and it just opened a whole other perspective about the sunrise for me. And I looked at sunrise a different way. And it's the same way when someone calls me and tells me something, they're like, Hey, this is what I'm going through. And I wondered if you had a similar experience. And then I hear this, I, I just see this, um, Al-Anon concept in a totally different way. And, uh, for the first time it clicked that my partner also used to say it, it, your sponsor's probably getting a lot out of it too when you call her. And I was like, this guy does clearly doesn't know what he's talking about. <laughs> but it finally clicked when somebody called me and I was like, wow, you know, this, this really does help me. And, um, so, and it helps me stay on my program when people call me. Yeah. Um, that's how I got imposing on people <laughs> or feeling like I was imposing on people. Kelly? Yeah. I remember hearing that idea in meetings too. The idea, I remember hearing people say, when you call someone, it helps them as much as it helps you, if not more. Mm. And I remember thinking that was such a ridiculous sounding <laughs> idea because for, you know, for me to call someone and dump my crap on them, how is that possibly going to help them? Right. You know, but, um, as I mentioned before, you know, I, I, I didn't necessarily utilize other people until it got so painful that I didn't know what else to do. And when you get those phone calls, as Swetha mentioned, you know, I, I didn't really understand that concept until people started calling me, until mm -hmm. I started sponsoring people and they called me with problems. And the, the thing that I realized, which is probably a higher power moment, if I, if I look at it that way, is that people always call me when I need it the most. You know, the, I'll see the phone ringing and, you know, I have a mixture of thoughts. Sometimes it's excitement. Sometimes it's like, oh man, this is like not good timing. But every time I think, oh man, this is not good timing. If I pick up the phone and I talk to someone for five minutes, it's usually about whatever problem I'm struggling with in that moment. Mm -hmm. And it's like exactly what I needed to hear, you know? And, and the benefit I think too, is that when, when someone asks me for help, takes me outside of myself, gets me out of my head. And like Spencer was saying, you kind of get that additional perspective, which usually ends up helping me solve my conundrum too. So, um, you know, I had an experience some years back now. Um, I was traveling and I had stopped for dinner. Uh, I had ordered a salad. As it turned out, that was fortuitous. Uh, because I got a call from somebody in the program who was struggling with some things that was going on with their their addict at the time and really needed to to talk about it. And I think we talked for 45 minutes while my salad stayed cold. <laughs> you know, it's good. It was like soup or something that would have been bad. Um, and I didn't know that I needed to talk program at that time, but at the end of that call, I felt a lot better than I had, f I had felt when I sat down to dinner. And hopefully the other person did too. And the other thing that I realized, and I said this at the end, I said, you know, um, 
your pain is not my pain. Uh, I can hear your pain. I can I can try to take take it in, and it doesn't hurt me. Uh, and sometimes that's important to me to be able to call somebody when I'm in pain and and sort of lay some of it off, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, understanding that it's it's not theirs and. If somebody is healthy in the program, they're not going to try to take it on. They're not going to try to feel my pain for me. Um, and maybe that's about you know choosing who to call mm-hmm. to some extent. Um, we're we're uh, reaching the end of um, our allotted time here. Um, we haven't really talked about how we respond when somebody else asks us for help. Uh, and and for me, you know, I still have that initial codependent reaction of I need to fix this. I don't know how to fix this, but I need to fix this. And and I always have to take that pause. I always have to take that pause and say to myself, no, this is not your job. Uh, your job is to listen. Uh, and your job is to share whatever my job is to share whatever pieces of my experience, strength, and hope uh, that might relate to um, what the other person is struggling with, understanding that it might not also, um, and that they will take what they like and leave the rest. And, you know, I mean, it partly depends on the relationship that I have with the other person. Like when a sponsee calls me, um, more likely to get into a little bit of uh, prescriptive behavior, uh, than if it's, if it's just a friend, um, who's calling because they're, they're, they're struggling with something. Mm-hmm. And I also have to know that it's okay for me to say no, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, to say I'm sorry, uh, I'm too busy right now. And actually, I might just not answer the phone in that case. Mm. You know, I don't have time, I'm sorry, and, and really meaning that I don't have time, not that I, I don't want to talk to you. So I, I definitely have that codependent tendency, too, to in- instinctively say no, but I also have this, like, commitment-phobic tendency to be like, if I say yes now, then I'm totally committed to having lunch with this person or, or whatever it is. And I I really don't – I mean, I, then I'm like, but what if I don't want to do it 10 minutes from now? And what if <laughs> what if I don't want to do it tomorrow? What if I'm not in the mood? And then I started having – I spiral, so I think you can tell how quickly that could spiral. <laughs> so I – instead, I, I really do try to hit the pause button. And think, well, um, do I have something to do? Do, do I really want to see this person or do I really want to talk to this person? And, and yeah, it's largely about being able to say no or being comfortable with saying no and realizing that that's not a reflection of, um, whether or not I'm a good friend or whether or not I'm a good person and uh, can I fix this person's life or, or whatever. And, and just saying, Hey, you know, it's, it's fine. Whatever it is, it's going to be fine. I don't, I don't run the world. Um, some I, can't, I think it, I think you might have mentioned this on an earlier show, Kelly. How one day you were driving into the sunset and you realize or sunrise and you realized you didn't have to do anything to make the sun <laughs> come up, and that that it'll be okay. And even when I get calls from people in the program, I'll sometimes I miss the calls. And in the beginning, I used to be like, "Oh my God, I did not pick up the phone. How could I do that?" Um, and then later, I realized there are like hundreds of people in the program. Someone else picked up their phone. It's okay. So yeah, that's that. I I just let go and realize that they have their own higher power. Sometimes I need someone to remind me of that, but everyone has their own higher power, and it's going to be okay. Yeah, yeah, I can agree with what both of you said. I know I have that same tendency, Spencer, to think 
uh, I have to have the right answer. I have to solve this. And, you know, I constantly just have to remind myself of the mantra, we don't give advice as I'm talking to someone, because it reminds me that my job there is to share with them experience, strength, and hope. And a lot of times I'll try to refer them to some part of the literature that maybe is along the lines of what they're dealing with. Or like you said, just just listen and nod and um, and let them know if I've been through something similar. Um, you guys touched on if if you're not available and, um, you know, because, <clears throat> excuse me, I've mentioned that I do travel for a living. A lot of times I'm not available when someone calls. The other day I got a, a frantic, uh, a couple phone calls right in a row and then a text message from someone whose partner had just relapsed. He had a, about nine months sober and then he relapsed and it was, a, I could tell it was a real panic moment for her. And even though I had that, um, that, thing you were saying, Swaith, of like, oh my God, she's in crisis. I have to answer the phone right now. I just couldn't. I was on my way into a meeting and I couldn't possibly take the phone call. So I texted her back and I gave her a list of three other people that I knew would understand what she was going through. And I said, try these three people. I will be available after this time and I'll call you back then. Mm -hmm. And when I called her back, she was like cool, calm and collected. She was doing fine. She Mm -hmm. had talked to somebody else and we still talked through what she was going through. And, um, you know, but I didn't want to leave her hanging. Mm -hmm. And, um, I I knew it was one of those moments where she just like needed to hear from somebody. So I felt like if at least I could point her in the direction of someone else. Um, I know that we're running Mm -hmm. out of time, but. There's one last topic I think that is important for us to touch on really quickly, and that is how how do we deal for help when we ask someone and they aren't able to give us what we're asking for or what we want or need? Because I feel like that might be important to the listeners. I guess first I would say that I should probably look at myself and ask myself if what I'm expecting is realistic uh, am I, am I expecting the other person to actually solve my problems for me because that's not realistic? Uh, or if maybe that person doesn't have the experience to suggest literature, to relate their own, uh, experience, uh, around the, the question that I'm asking about. And, you know, I try to pick people that I think might have some experience. So, when I was dealing with issues around my children, I would call people that I knew who had children who were dealing with, you know, drug issues or mental health issues, whatever it was that, that I was dealing with at the moment in hopes that maybe uh, they would have some experience that I could relate to. Uh, and sometimes I had to call several people. I think I don't do the thing where, uh, where I keep sort of pushing. <clears throat> to try to get an answer that the other person's just not ready or able to give me. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think the best thing for me is to realize that either or both of I'm asking for something that is actually not theirs to give, or I need to talk to somebody else who maybe has the more relevant experience. Um, for me, I think uh, one, one of the greatest gifts of the program um, for me has been self-awareness. So, I mean, it's an ongoing thing. It's, pro- it's a progress kind of thing. So, um, <clears throat> when I'm asking somebody for something that I want, like, uh, when I'm calling someone and they can't pick up the phone or I'm asking a friend for something and they're not able to give me what I need, it's really easy for me to slip into 
either getting resentful about that or feeling shame about what it is I was asking for. Um, but instead I'm able to, uh, really just do a, sp- a spot check kind of t- uh, a fourth step thing and then, and try and decide or not fourth step, 10 step and, um, <clears throat> decide what is it that I'm really wanting? Like if I call someone and I just want to talk and they're not able to pick up the phone, was I needing to talk to that specific person or was it that I just needed, I, I just feel it was feeling isolated. Um, <clears throat> I try to bring it back to myself and try to focus on what it is that I want rather than what the other person rather than what the other person can provide. And once I'm able to narrow it down to that, I'm able to then reach out, go to other outlets or, or what have you, um, and, and resolve what it is that I need. And if that's company or something like that, I mean, there, I could go to a dog park and talk to someone if no one else is available or, <laughs> or whatever. I mean, it's not, it, I, because of the program, I'm able to bring it back to what it is that I need and what I want. And, um, not necessarily quote unquote fix it on my own, but just be aware enough to seek out help in other ways. Kelly? Someone shared at a meeting last night that she was struggling with making a decision. Mm-hmm. Uh, and she called her sponsor and said, I can't, I don't know what to do right now. I really want to do this, but I also really want to do this. And I have to make a decision because they're both about to start. Mm-hmm. And her sponsor's response was, I think you should ask your higher power and let me know how it goes. <laughs> and that was it. And I really, that really stuck with me because I feel like that's, that's the response that I often get when I ask for help. And, um, and so that's what I've come to use, um, kind of using that pause button. And if it means calling someone else, if it means praying, if it means doing some yoga, if it means going for a walk, you know, whatever it could mean, just, you know, I think for me, if I'm, if I'm not getting what I need or I can't get the help that I'm asking for, I need to start with my higher power and then, you know, maybe move down the phone list or, you know, try, try another route if that's what I keep coming back to. But I, you know, I think God is for me really essential in that process. You know, I, I need to take that step back and not take it out on someone because they're not available when I need them mm-hmm. or, you know, whatever. So Yeah, not available. Um, I had that experience about a week ago. Uh, I was at a workshop that I knew was going to be sort of emotionally difficult for me. Uh, and at the lunch break, I tried to call my sponsor and he was not available. And I tried to call another person who was not available. And I left a voicemail with at least one of them. And then I sent a text, uh, said something like, you know, I'd really like to talk if you're available before whatever the end of the lunchtime was. Uh, could you give me a quick call, please? And neither of them turned out to be available. But, you know, two things there. One was just the fact of sort of getting out of my head and just putting it out there. Like, I'm feeling uncomfortable. I'd like to talk to somebody. Uh, helped. And at the end of the, at the next break, I looked at my phone and I had, uh, texts from, from both of them. And the one person said, just remember your higher power has your back. And I was like, Oh yeah. Okay. (laughs) I got that. That's good. So even though they weren't available to talk, uh, I did get something that I needed. Even in not making contact, I got something that I needed. And then I did get a response that was helpful you know, a little later than I wanted it, but it was still, when I opened up my phone and saw that message, I was like, 
it was just like this sort of feeling of of goodwill sort of flowed into me at that moment. It was amazing. I, um, you made me think, Spencer, uh, something happened a couple of days ago where I was dealing with a situation that I was considering a potential relapse and, uh, of my alcoholic, not of mine. Say, your partner. I have daily relapses, but <laughs> yeah, no, this was of, of my partner. And, um, it was in the middle of the day and I knew that like pretty much everyone that I wanted to reach out to was probably working and it would be difficult for them to take a phone call. And so I sent the same email to three separate people because I knew that that would allow for the opportunity to, for them to answer it in their own time, for them to not feel pressured by my panicked voice on the other end of the phone and they could sort of, you know, think it through and, and take some time and, the the responses trickled in throughout the day at moments when I really needed to hear back from someone. And so it was it was very clandestine. I was just kind of perfect how it all worked out. Mm-hmm. Um, I think we are definitely over time now, but I just wanted to reiterate, if anyone listening is in crisis, if you are in need of help, um, we've discussed a lot of possible ways for you to get help. You can go to a meeting. You can call an Al-Anon hotline if you don't have phone numbers from people in meetings that you're familiar with. You can grab some literature, which is available on numerous websites and several major chain bookstores, I believe. Um, and it's there if you ask for it. After a short break, we'll be back with our lives in recovery, where we talk about the meetings we attend and what's happening in our lives. And our break is the Beatles singing Help, which I don't think any explanation is required. Here. <laughs> Help, I need somebody. Help, not just anybody. Help, you know I need someone. Help, when, when I was young, was so much younger than today. I never needed anybody's help in any way. But now these days are gone, I'm not so self-assured. Now I find a change of mind, I'll open up the doors. Help me if you can, I'm feeling down. And I do appreciate you being around. Help me get my feet back on the ground. In this section of the podcast, we talk about our lives in recovery and what's happening in our meetings and our lives this week. So let's start with Spencer. Well, I went to a meeting Wednesday night where um, the topic uh, of the day was uh, just for today. He said a lot of things. It was a really good lead. And the part that struck me was the bit about living in the past uh, when we're living uh, in anger or uh, and I when I shared I said you know I've I've discovered another way to live in the past and that's to live in shame, mm-hmm. and that getting out of the past can get me out of those feelings and and I'd also uh, ha- heard it said that when I'm fearful I'm probably living in the future um, I'm looking at things that have not yet happened and might never happen as if they were happening today, and uh, so that that was what I got from that that meeting I had an interesting experience recording an episode of the Recovered podcast uh, with my friend Mark, because the topic there was the persistent illusion, which is the persistent illusion that al- alcoholics can drink normally. And uh, so there was a lot about alcohol. There was a lot about uh, how how the other people uh, in, the, uh, in the circle drank when they were drinking. Uh, and uh, 
but I was, you know, I was able to share some about, well, my illusion that my alcoholic could, could get back to drinking normally. Uh, this was an illusion that I held on to for a long time. Um, so it was a really interesting discussion. Um, and if, if you're interested in, in hearing really some really personal sharing about what it felt like when uh, some of the people in, in the circle were drinking alcoholically, you know, as, even as, a, as an Al-Anon, you might find that very enlightening. I certainly found some of it uh, enlightening myself. Hmm. Swetha, how about you? How were your meetings this week? Really good. I went to my AWOL group on Monday and I, our topic was, uh, was relationships. <laughs> um, but I, it was, it's a really sizable group, I think. So we didn't all get to share, but I really enjoyed listening to all of the, uh, various things they were talking about. It really helps me kind of look back at my own behavior and reflect more on my own behavior and there, it's it's really interesting hearing other people's shares in the AWOL group or in the meetings because stuff I didn't even realize was codependent or stuff I didn't realize was necessarily unhealthy or was in denial about. Um, people will come to will shed light on it by just talking about their own experience, and it's uh, it's just really interesting. Oftentimes I'll be listening to people in the meetings and someone will say something and everyone laughs and I was like, oh oh, is that one of those things? <laughs> I didn't know. <laughs> Maybe I should think about that. So that was, that was Monday. Wednesday, it was, I came in late for just for today, but I did catch all the shares and they were really nice. Um, and I ended up act, act, acting out, uh, the, or asking for help. But, um, at the end of that, with, after the Wednesday meeting, they have a newcomers meeting, which is really nice. It just introduces newcomers to the program and I'm doing the lead there. And, uh, every week, different people come in and talk. And a lot of times in the beginning, I was the first day I did it, I was like, I have to do this perfectly. <laughs> and uh, that lasted about 30 seconds. And then I got up and I was like, I need help. And uh, I managed to walk out into the hallway and just the person I was hoping to see was there. And I brought him in and asked him for help. And he sat down with me with the newcomers. And um, so, yeah, that's, that's been kind of a practicing program there is just being able to say, I have no clue. But I think I know someone who does. Stay right here. <laughs> Please hold. Uh, at the Friday night meeting, the Young at Heart meeting, uh, we talked about the third tradition, uh, which is, uh, I really like that tradition because when I first came into the program, I didn't have any active alcoholism in my life. And I thought, I was, I felt really guilty. Every person I talked to for the first few the first few weeks I was there, I guess, in, in meetings, I would confess. I'd be like, I have no active alcoholism and then kind of cringe and wait for them to say, <laughs> get out. Um, <laughs> but, uh, yeah, that was, that, it really helped me to hear that third tradition and hear everyone say, you know, if you hear something here that you resonate with, you probably belong here, even if you don't know how. Just as a reminder for our listeners, Tradition 3 says, The relatives of alcoholics, when gathered together for mutual aid, may call themselves an Al-Anon family group, provided that as a group they have no other affiliation. And and here's the part that Swaith is really referring to. The only requirement for membership is that there be a problem of alcoholism in a relative or friend. Right. And we say, only you can decide that. Yeah. We're not going to decide it for you. Yeah. Thanks, Spencer. What about you, Kelly? Um, yeah, I also went to the Wednesday night and Friday night meetings this week because we're doing the recording on a different day. I haven't been to the AA open talk meeting yet, but, uh, Wednesday was great. Uh, the speaker did an awesome job. He's somebody that 
he has so much to offer and I rarely hear him share at meetings. Um, he did a, a great job. I also had an opportunity to ask for help at the Wednesday night meeting. I had been struggling with someone at the meeting who has been very critical towards me about the way that I'm handling a commitment that I have at the meeting. And every week they make a comment to me about how they don't feel that I'm doing it properly. And so I finally (laughs) pulled my sponsor aside and said, I need to talk to you about this because I was starting to second guess myself because I just kept getting the same comment over and over again. And I was like, man, maybe I am doing it wrong. (laughs) And thankfully, she assured me that, you know, with meeting commitments, uh, it's pretty free form and you're sort of free to handle it the way that you feel is right for you. So I'm glad that I asked for help and I felt a little bit better after that. Friday night meeting, as we mentioned, was the third tradition. And what I took from that was the the shares kind of went in a direction of, because there's a, a portion of the reading that talks about, you know, the reason we don't affiliate with anyone else is because it helps to create an environment of safety and trust. Mm-hmm. And so that was kind of what I took away from the meeting. There was a lot of shares around the idea of, feeling comfortable in the meeting, feeling like they can share openly and honestly because they can trust that people are not going to take the information and share it with someone else or that they won't be ostracized because they shared about something that isn't in line with some sort of religious practice or something of that nature. Our topic next week will be blame. Awesome. We welcome your thoughts. You can join the conversation too. Please leave a voicemail or send us an email with your experience or questions about blame. So Swetha, how can people send us feedback? You can call and leave us a voicemail at 734-707-8795. Just put the podcast on pause and join the conversation at 734-707-8795. If you prefer not to use your voice, you can send an email to feedback at com. We'd love to hear from you. Share your experience, strength, and hope, or your questions about today's topic of asking for help or next, week top- next week's topic of blame. If you have a topic you'd like us to talk about, please let us know. Spencer, where can our listeners find out more about The Recovery Show? Well, our website, therecoveryshow.com, has all the information about the show. Uh, We post show notes there. You can listen to the podcast episodes right online on your computer. We also have a blog with almost daily meditations. Occasionally we miss a day because we're not perfect, and that's okay. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, another way to contribute to the content of the podcast and the website is to share a comment on the website, uh, on any of the postings on the website. And uh, we had one comment this week from Charlie. He says, valuable, meaningful podcast. Happy to discover that you've paired it with these words here. Thank you. And uh, we had some uh, other listener feedback. We had an email from Amanda. Um, Yes, from Amanda W. in California. She writes, your podcast has become an important tool of my recovery. I will recommend you far and wide by word of mouth. I particularly appreciate the perspective from folks somewhat younger than the Al-Anon average. One thing I might like to hear more of is input from people who are living with active drinking and drugging. Thank you for your service. I think your podcast is filling a tremendous need. Thanks, Amanda. Your request lines up with some plans we have for roundtable episodes where we bring in several Al-Anon members to talk about their experience. The first of these will probably focus on members with children who are alcoholics or addicts. Another with members who currently live with or have lived with active alcoholism and addiction. Sounds like a great idea. We also got some feedback from Stacy M. from Wisconsin. 
And she wrote us a nice review in iTunes. She says, thank you so much for creating this podcast. I find myself sharing these discussions in my meetings and with my Al-Anon peers. All of the podcasts are great. And the step two podcast blew my mind. I'm speaking on a panel this weekend, and I will be sharing what I have learned from listening to this podcast. So thank you so much, Stacey. We really appreciate your comments, and we hope that we continue to blow your mind. And I, again, I'd like to encourage people, if you can go to iTunes and leave us a review, and I understand that there may be an issue of anonymity there that you don't want to do that, um, and that is perfectly understandable. But if you can give us a review, or if you can just um, give us a star rating, which as far as I can tell, your name never shows up anywhere when you give us just give us a star rating, um, that will help us uh, rise up in the rankings and, and be easier to find for people who are looking for some Al-Anon recovery online. We're going to close the show with the song Breathe Me by Sia. The song opens with the lyric, help, I've done it again. <laughs> in the song, I think she's reaching out because she's emotionally hurt um, and seeking out uh, comfort or a break from her isolation is, is how I kind of felt about it. But to me, it sounds like a codependent, <laughs> but that's okay. Help, I have done it again. I have been here many times before. and please keep coming back. Whatever your problems, there are those among us who have had them too. If we did not talk about a problem you are facing today, feel free to contact us so we can talk about it in a future episode. May understanding, love, and peace grow in you one day at a time.